Good evening. So it's your third evening. I think it's Mr. Goenka who says day three is over. <laughs> so tonight I'd like to um, talk about the qualities of mind that are to be brought to the metta practice. And first I'd like to just talk a little bit about metta itself, its, pres- its benefits, which are actually presence and wholeness. So I'll start with a poem for you. It's from Hafiz. It's called A Cushion for Your Head. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God, from love, is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you trays of food and something that you like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. So just resting is akin to the stillness of meditation. And this stillness reveals the truth of our lives, that we've never been separate, we've never been apart or alone. And that's why, as Hafiz says, our separation from love is the hardest work in this world. And this is the beauty of metta. It's a return to love. And this love that we return to when we practice loving-kindness is not one that is bound to desire And it doesn't have to pretend that things are other than they are. It overcomes the illusion of separation, of not being a part of the whole. It's a love that knows how to bring soft words as a cushion for the head, and because it knows what is needed, what is an appropriate response, because there is only one of us here. And so there's no separateness from love. Metta overcomes this misperception, this illusion that we have of separateness, this fear and alienation and loneliness and despair. And what gets, brought, what gets birthed through our practice is a sense of reconnecting, a genuine realization of connectedness and appropriate responsiveness. And that brings a certain unification and confidence and even a feeling of safety. And this feeling of safety comes from our um, ability that metta brings us to embrace every part of ourselves. Nothing is left out, even, even that part that is separated from love. And it embraces all parts of the world 
and it disabuses us from any perception of separateness. And it shows this separation as illusion. This is from Albert Einstein. A human being is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and his feelings as somewhat separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. It's not bad, is it? Albert Einstein. Wow. Pretty good. There's a wonderful haiku that I love, which says, hearing the birds sing in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto. Have you, how many times have you gone around the world in these last three days looking for the completion and the peace, the happiness that you seek, only to find that it's actually right here in this wintry landscape, in this beautiful place. So you've been practicing uh, first with mindful awareness and then uh, the metta bhavana, and perhaps you've actually found something right here rather than in the imagination, the imaginative landscape of your mind. And I would guess that that doesn't mean that you've had a perfectly brilliant three days, perfect sitting, perfect mindfulness, perfect metta, where the heart has become perfectly still, opened immediately, and has stayed open. Or perhaps I'm wrong. Is there somebody here who's... (laughs) Come on, raise your hand. I want to know you. Perhaps you've noticed instead that there are cycles of pleasure and pain. And that as Sharon said yesterday morning, you may have noticed that the mind has these wild swings from quiet uh, sleepiness where it appears nothing's happening to these wild bouts of restlessness where the mind gets up to trying to make something happen. Or you've remembered a very painful loss or a beautiful vacation that you recently had, or some triumph that you've had in your life, or some failure. And so as we've been practicing, we're learning how to move from trying to control the uncontrollable cycles of pleasure and pain, and instead simply to learn how to open to love in this moment, whatever is happening. 
And you may have noticed that when we let go of thinking that we know how things ought to be, what should happen, and instead simply pay attention to what is happening now, let some peace arise. Have you noticed that? And as soon as we let go of the struggle to manipulate people and situations and circumstances, even just in our minds, a certain amount of spaciousness arrives. And that spaciousness has the ability to include everything, 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 wherever we are in the cycle. And because that opening to who uh, we are can happen without dependence on another person or on particular external uh, circumstances or situations, what happens? We begin to see that we don't require things to be, we don't need to require things to be in a certain way. And so where we may have felt at the mercy of circumstances, there can now be a a feeling of beauty and relaxation into that feeling of safety. Because when we practice metta, it actually changes our relationship to life because we open to the truth of our actual experience. And this shift is a shift away from struggle and creating wars and uh, the pain of discontent. And it's a shift away from that into ease. And when we do that, we discover that the fullness of being which we experience as happiness actually is what we know as loving-kindness. It's actually that fullness. So to be undivided and to be completely present is love. And to pay attention is to love. And it is this kind of love that we call metta. Sharon was talking today about the near enemies and the far enemies of these Brahma-viharas. So we know that this metta is neither sentimentality nor passion nor uh, attachment, but it's more of a kinship, a kind of warm friendship that is fully present and fully attentive to our experience. And because it also includes all of our experience and all parts of ourselves, it also includes all beings with whom we share this planet. And we have, when we have a glimpse of this, we begin to understand deeply the essential interconnectedness of all beings of which Einstein is speaking. So as we open, we uncover the mind's inherent ability to heal, to grow, and to change. Being still, we see the power of the mind, which is the strength of our own capacity 
to love and connect. And as we discover this capacity to love and connect, we develop intimacy with ourselves and with all of life. And perhaps the deepest transformation that happens is that we begin to see what is possible. We actually begin to understand the boundlessness of our minds and our hearts. Because what appear, what initially appeared perhaps to be unworkable or intolerable becomes less so when we shift our intention from aversion to what is arising to patience with what is arising. And that is why these four Brahma-viharas that Sharon introduced this afternoon, metta, loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity are called boundless states of mind. Because when we enter into them, we are no longer bound by previous ideas of limitation. Perhaps you've glimpsed it. I don't know if you have. But our potential as human beings is boundless. It's vast. It's as wide as the sky, and it's as deep as the ocean. Our minds are incredibly powerful fields of energy. This is from the first verse of the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. So recognizing this is the ground for seeing that what we care about, what we think about, what we express, and what we create makes a difference. We may think that we're just these small beings that doesn't matter to the world whether we come or go, whether we live or die, but it's not true. When we truly practice, we can benefit ourselves and all of life. We see there's nothing holding us back from shaping the world, shaping our lives except our limited ideas of our own potential, of who we truly are, and of what we really can do. We know what the state of the world is. Right now, as we speak, I, was, I can tell you that I was absolutely horrified by... Um, a video that's going around on the internet that shows little children in Haiti eating mud because they're hungry. So there's grinding poverty all over the world. There's uh, their tribal wars in Africa, internecine wars. 
our own country has overhanging threats that we make from time to time of nuclear war. We have two million people warehoused in our prisons. The number of people that are becoming qualified as poor officially on the rolls of poverty is growing at an alarming rate. We have racism and injustice. So we can easily see the capacity of our minds for destruction. What is still puzzling is that we don't understand that we have a commensurate capacity for creativity, for love, and for compassion. So as the Buddha said, watch the thoughts and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. So recognizing the power of our minds gives us the ability to truly know that even as terrible things happen to us, we can receive them in a spacious and ultimately in a more enlightened way. The Buddha taught that his students, he taught his students that a power, the power of love can be developed that is so strong that the mind becomes like space that cannot be tainted or that the mind becomes like a pure flowing river that cannot be burned. This is the power of the practice, he said. When we have love in our minds, it is a river that not even fire can touch. A very good friend of mine recently passed away. She was, um, she had a terrible disease and uh, she battled it for several years and finally was overcome by it. But she knew that she was going to die within three or four months because she had stopped uh, treatment. And so she took great care to write about her experience. And she wrote to me about uh, the pain that she was suffering. And she said, in my years of practice, I have spent many hours sitting with aversion to unpleasant body sensations. As I sit with my distended belly, What I see is that every itch I didn't scratch, every tickle in my throat I didn't cough, and every throb on my forehead from a migraine that I didn't rub has served me well. I have developed, cultivated, a muscle for bearing witness, being a mirror to unpleasant body sensations. The more I continue in this way, the more peaceful I become. There is no separation. The unpleasant body sensations and peacefulness are seamless.
That's the power of the practice. And that's the refinement and the purification of the heart that we are cultivating. So as you sit with your own body discomfort and you sit with the thoughts coming and going in the mind and you wonder, what on earth has this got to do with enlightenment? Just know that something is actually happening every time you change your intention from aversion to patience, from aversion to love. The mind knows becomes trained in that way. So that's the broad view, and I'd like to narrow it down somewhat now and to talk a little bit about the practice itself, the qualities that are to be brought and cultivated in the practice. And these qualities are precision and gentleness or heartfulness and the ability to let go. So Sharon mentioned the other day the word bhavana, which means to bring forth or to cultivate. So I'd like to talk about the qualities that are the object of our metta bhavana, our cultivation of loving kindness. These qualities are already there in our hearts and minds. Our task is not so much to uh, become perfect or to exchange our personalities for better ones. If you think that's what it is, good luck with that. But our task is actually to awaken the heart-mind. In the Tibetan tradition, you'll sometimes uh, see reference to the word bodhicitta, which is the word that expresses this awakened heart-mind. Mark, uh, in his talk, talked about citta, the uh, word that expresses heart-mind in uh, Sanskrit and in Pali. Um, And just, it's interesting that in many of the Asian languages, the words heart and mind are not separate. So um, we can talk about the qualities that are to be brought forth in this cultivation of citta, bodhicitta, and how they are to be cultivated. So in the teachings, uh, there are two different strands. There's one, uh, two ways in which we can approach uh, this bhavana, this bringing forth. One is that uh, from one viewpoint, we're in this human unworthy state. So it's necessary to change and purify and transform and improve ourselves. Alan Watts, the... um, Zen, wonderful Zen teacher from the 50s through the 90s, I think, calls this religion as a grim duty. You know, you know how that is, right? You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to become somebody else. I'm going to become this better person. And my teacher, Jack Cornfield, says that this approach has the divine mixed up with dieting in our minds. <laughs> You know how that is, right? 
And the other strand or spirit is the understanding that fundamental wakefulness and compassion is actually our true nature. And this spirit holds that the mind-heart is luminous, but it is caught in confusion, fears, desires, which are not permanent fixtures, but visitors, like Sharon talked about last night. And this loses touch with our basic fundamental openness. This is from Rilke, the German poet, Sonnet 6, where he speaks about, um, he says, In your opulence, you seem like clothing around clothing, around a body that is nothing more than brightness. He's speaking to a rose as petals surrounding radiance. And this is no different, really, from how we are, from our own existence. So in this strand, where we know that we are luminosity itself, we're speaking not so much of the notion of developing a different self, but of remembering who we truly are. Remembering, remembering, bringing members back into one whole. So we're remembering something deep in ourselves, the qualities of the awakened heart-mind that speak to our inherent nobility, our wakefulness, our true nature. And the Buddha referred to them as the seven factors of awakening, And they include the qualities of mindfulness, clear seeing, vitality or aliveness, joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity or balance in the midst of all circumstances and things. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So Aldous Huxley said, the spiritual journey does not consist of arriving at a new destination where a person gains what she did not have or what she is not. It consists in the dissipation of one's own ignorance concerning oneself and life and the gradual growth of that that understanding which begins the spiritual awakening. So these qualities, these luminous qualities, are all emanations of metta, of loving-kindness, And what is wonderful is that they are both the path and the fruit of the path. And they are accessed and enhanced through bringing these qualities of precision and gentleness and the ability to let go to our practice. So the Buddha's teachings don't have uh, the concept of sin, of any kind of sin, original or otherwise. What he actually taught, rather, was that what we suffer from is a kind of misunderstanding. And we all share this ignorance or this misunderstanding. But But this misunderstanding is something that we can transform and that we can see through. It's as if we're in darkness, 
and we discover a light switch. And it's not a matter of fault or blame that we're in the dark room. As Wes Nisker, one of our colleagues, our teaching colleagues says, when you take into account the whole history of evolution that has brought us here, you can be assured that you are not your fault. <laughs> you are not your fault. It's innocent. And it's just fortunate that someone shows us the light switch. So life gets brightened up considerably. And in the same way, if we see our so-called limitations with some clarity and with precision and gentleness and good-heartedness and kindness, and having seen them fully, we let go. We open further. We begin to find that our mind is much more vast and refreshing and fascinating than we'd realized before. So the key to feeling less shut off and more whole is to be able to see clearly what we are and what we're doing. So let's talk um, about precision and gentleness and letting go. The practice, you may say, is to turn your attention to the field of the heart-mind and cultivate the quality of loving-kindness there. So we see just, when we look, we just see our ordinary heart, and it's not manipulated, it's not controlled, it's not um, aggrandized, it's not changed in any way. And when we look into that heart, and we just start to see the phrases, we just start to say, use the phrases simply and straightforwardly, not adding any particular feeling and not fabricating any particular mind state, but just uh, simply attending to each simple wish in its turn. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. Now, this seems like an awfully simple instruction, but to actually stay with these phrases and actually be with each phrase fully and presently requires a lot of precision. When I practiced in uh, Burma with a Burmese Saido, uh, we had interviews just like you've been having, only different. <laughs> because we were given very, 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 very precise instructions about how to report our experience to the Sayadaw. And I remember having a really incredibly insightful dream one night, and I could, and it actually um, made me understand uh, my practice in a very, very different way, and I wanted to um, describe it to the Sayadaw. 
And he absolutely refused to hear my dream because what he was interested in is my actual experience on the cushion. So what they ask you to do is to remember a very clear sitting that you have and to describe it. So it would go something like this. I sat down. I placed my attention on the abdomen. I noticed pressure, movement, vibration, hardness, expansion on the in-breath. And then there was a pause and the beginning of the out-breath. And I noticed contraction, softness, movement, stages of movement, and then sound arose. I turned my attention to the sound. It was a chirping. The mind said, that's a bird. I noticed that the mind had wandered, and so I brought my attention back, and on and on and on. And that kind of, and I can't tell you how much I rebelled. I didn't want to do it. I thought it was ridiculous. I wondered what I was doing there. Why had I come all this way to describe a bre- one breath to someone? And then what I realized is that in order to accurately report that kind of experience, that my attention had to become incredibly precise. Where one gathers the attention, aims it at the object, and one side or, and I'm not going to ask you to do this, but one side or, side or, upandita, describes this as crushing the object with your attention. Really, you don't have to do it. And sustaining the attention. And what this does, it develops a deep and abiding concentration in the moment, and the heart and the mind become very still. So when we ask that you sit down and that you actually uh, come back to the present moment, come back to the present moment, and come back to the person to whom you're giving your metta. This brings out the precision and the clarity and the accuracy of your mind. It really does. So just the fact that you always come back with your full effort or energy, and that you aim the attention at the subject of your metta, and you aim the attention at each phrase, and you try and you try in as gentle a way as possible to be as fully with the phrase as you can. This truly sharpens the mind, not only in meditation, but it just sharpens the mind, because once the mind is sharpened, it's sharpened. So this ability to be as precise as you can be with your practice is all, um, it's all to the good. St. Francis de Sales said, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently and replace it tenderly in presence. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back and place it again in presence, though it went away every time you brought it back, 
your hour would be very well employed. And the next part of the practice is that when you realize that you've been away, that something has pulled you away, you notice thinking. And that requires a tremendous amount of precision. Even if you wake up, and some of you have um, reported that you feel dreamy, if you wake up as if from a dream and realize that you've been thinking, and you immediately go back to the phrase and accidentally forget to notice the thinking, even then, you should just pause a little bit and notice the thinking. And it's really helpful for many people to use the label thinking or planning or fantasizing or remembering. Whatever it is that, you've, that the mind has been engaged in, use the label because it's so precise. And it helps to move you from content to process. In that way, if you're not overwhelmed by the content or proliferating from just this simple energetic movement of the mind where a thought popped up unbidden and also not pushing it away, but simply knowing that thinking has arrived. So you just acknowledge that you've been thinking, just that, no more, no less, no, I shouldn't have been or that was a good thought. Maybe I should just continue this a little bit because who knows where it's going to go, right? Nothing like that, but just letting letting the mind register that you've been thinking. And this brings you from getting caught in the content and instead being with the, pro- with the process of thinking. And in that way, the proliferation of the mind, you know, that Sharon's so wonderful at describing, doesn't happen, doesn't begin. And when we repeat the phrases, that cultivates the precision of the mind. And when you label, that supports and elicits the precision. Your mind-heart becomes clear and stabilized. And as you practice, you might want to become aware of the fact that the mind is becoming clear and stabilized. So bringing the mind back over and over and over again to the phrases can be an incredibly beneficial technique that helps to concentrate and calm the mind. And remember, those are two of the qualities, the seven factors of awakening that I referred to before, of the uh, factors or qualities of the awakened mind. So this uh, cultivating of concentration and calming the mind through precision is a cultivation through precision, but it's not yet gentleness. So if we just emphasized precision and not gentleness, the mind could become quite militant and harsh. And so it may also become quite goal-oriented. I'm sure you recognize that. So not only should you look at the precision of the aiming and connecting and sustaining, we gather the, the attention the energy, and we aim the attention at the object and we sustain it through the phrase. But it's very helpful 
to cultivate a sense of relaxation, of overall relaxation, while you're practicing. You may notice during the practice, as you become more aware and more awake, that your stomach tends to get very tense and your shoulders tend to get very tight. I know some of you have uh, reported that, that you're getting uh, tension in your shoulders and in your back. So it also helps to notice this and to purposely relax your stomach, relax your shoulders, and relax your neck. And if you find it difficult to relax, just to patiently work with it. Now, we can't guarantee that this means that it will go away, you know. So I think a few days ago I talked about not making a businessman's deal with the pain, right? If I notice you, you'll go away. Or if I watch you, you'll go away. Or if I relax you, you'll go away. But actually to do it simply because we know that adding gentleness to this kind of precision actually um, helps the mind to become still. So we add patience because patience is part of, uh, of gentleness. Again, St. Francis de Sales, when you encounter difficulties and contradiction, don't try to break them, but bend them with gentleness and with time. So I think you've probably noticed that the metta practice creates some spaciousness and lightness in the mind. Have you noticed that at all? It strengthens the ability to see without judging and helps us to avoid the very tendency that we have in spiritual practice to condemn who we are and to seek in that grasping kind of way to uh, be someone else. So all through the practice you begin to see that the means and the end are the same. The path and the fruit are the same. To reach an end of balanced awareness and love, we work on expressing these factors in every moment. And that's how the practice brings gentleness. We work on expressing metta, and that brings gentleness into the mind. And in turn, that gentleness supports the tone of metta in the heart. And so when the phrases are repeated, it not not only does it ripen the precision of our minds, but it also brings out that inherent gentle quality, that quality of warmth, of kindness, of friendliness, because uh, the attention is very soft and the intention is very gentle. And Sharon spoke this afternoon about the importance of uh, shifting our intention because intention in our teachings uh, is everything in terms of the consequences that come back as a result of our actions. They come back as a result of our intention. So this softness and this gentle intention is like a whisper in the heart or simply feeling metta. This quality of gentleness can be invoked by inclining the heart to feeling metta or simply contemplating it, transforming our intention again 
to one of kindness and gentleness. And in the beginning, it may seem a bit mechanical. And yet, as you practice, and you may have noticed this already, trying to concentrate on the meaning of the words, on what it is that you are wishing for yourself and others, slowly, that feeling of love and compassion will begin to grow and become strong. Even if in this moment it doesn't appear so, even in this moment if what's happening is anger arising, or the very opposite, cruelty, or some, some other mood of the mind. Just this willingness to incline the mind with precision and with gentleness, this repetition that cultivates precision and cultivates the intention of gentleness, that brings the development of the great heart, the boundless state of metta. And we're not practicing to achieve anything except to be fully present with kindness. And it's not something that happens, and then that's it. You know, I've done it, I've achieved it. You've noticed that, right? So it's being awake to the ebb and the flow of the movement of the heart. In a way, it's like being aware, being uh, fully present to the process of the heart itself. And that also has softness and gentleness. If there was a goal that you were supposed to achieve, such as a perfect concentration or no thoughts, that wouldn't be very soft. You'd have to struggle to get rid of all those thoughts, and you probably couldn't do it anyway. Trust me on that. But the fact of no goal adds to the softness. So be sure that you... Remember that whenever you're feeling as if it's not, I'm not doing it, this is not happening, I can't do this. It's, just remember that it's not really about um, accomplishing this or attaining that or being this way or becoming that way, but actually the simple act of doing the practice is sufficient. So along with being as precise as you can, really emphasize the softness. If you find your body tensing, relax it. If you find your mind tensing, relax it. And feel the expansiveness of the phrases touching the mind and heart. Let your practice be soft and gentle, but at the same time precise. So I'll just talk a little bit about the third quality of letting go. And this quality of letting go actually uh, brings the, the awakening factors of calm and equanimity. My favorite teaching on letting go is from Ajahn Sumedho, who is uh, a teacher of mine, wonderful, um, actually American monk, who was a, the first Western student of Achan Chah, who's a quite famous Thai uh, master from the second half of the 20th century. Ajahn Sumedho says, for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and grasping, you simplify your meditation practices to just two words, let go. 
rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that, achieve this and go into that. The grasping mind wants to read the suttas, study the Abhidhamma, learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Majamika, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go, let go, let go? Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, let go, until the desire faded. So I'm making it very simple for you, to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we only have these poverty-stricken practices. So as you work with being really faithful to the practice and being as precise as you can and simultaneously as kind as you can, the ability to open, to let go, seems to happen all by itself. This discovery of your ability to let go arises spontaneously because you don't force it. Even though it's difficult to do as you begin to work with metta, the mind begins to discover more space, and this sense of being able to let go gradually begins to dawn on you. So don't have any high expectations. Just do the practice. And as the months and the years go by, what else do you have to do? The way you regard the world will begin to change. You'll learn what it is to let go and what it is to open beyond limited ideas and beliefs about the mind, the heart, and the world. It's like magic, really. And the experience of being willing to know where the mind is, the skill of seeing this becomes much more vivid and you may be completely caught up in a fantasy in remembering the past or planning for the future, completely caught as if you were a hundred miles away. You're elsewhere and you're with some other people and you've renovated your house or relived that wonderful vacation in Hawaii or recalled a sad event or you get all caught up in worrying about something that might happen that hasn't yet happened but you know it's going to happen or getting a lot of pleasure from thinking about something that's going to happen and you're going to make it happen the way you want it to happen and how it will happen, and you're completely involved as, in a, as if you're in a dream. And then suddenly you just realize and you come back. And suddenly you notice it happened automatically. And basically, all you've done is to let go of your thoughts. You don't repress the thoughts. You acknowledge and know them very clearly and kindly, and you can let them go. 
and you may have noticed that they come back anyway, so it's not like you have to hang on to them. So it's incredibly powerful to that you could be completely obsessed with hope and fear and all kinds of other thoughts, and you could realize what you've been doing without criticizing, and you could let it go. And this is probably one of the most amazing tools that you could be given, the ability to just let things go and to not get caught in the grip of your own angry or passionate or worried or depressed thoughts. And when we can let them go, then they're not, they don't have to be acted out in the world. They can come and go. This work that we do can actually change the world. This is from Martin Luther King. He said in receiving his Nobel Peace Prize, Sooner or later, all the people of the world will have to discover a way to live together in peace and thereby transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood, and I know he meant sisterhood too. If this is to be achieved, we must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. He understood the power of love in the mind, and so can we. Let's sit. Thank you for your attention.